Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Megan McArdle. Megan is a Washington Post columnist, and she's also the author of the book, The Upside of Down, While Failing Well is the Key to Success. Megan, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me. Now, we've seen a lot of big layoffs in tech and in media, but they haven't yet been super widespread in the rest of the economy. Do you see a scenario where we're going to see a lot more broader layoffs, or do you think it's just a blip, or where, where are we on that continuum? I think the famous Yogi Berman's predictions are hard, especially about the future, and I definitely think right? it's hard to know. I think that a lot of that is going to depend on, we thought that we had just kicked inflation and it was over, and now we're seeing some more worrying signs. I think the Fed is probably not going to pull back quite as fast as we might have hoped a month or so ago. And that is going to eventually put pressure on manufacturing and so forth. But I think right now what we're seeing is just that the roar back in services is just swamping the decline. And it's not just tech, sadly, it's also media (laughs) where we're suffering. Those industries are hurting, but in part, that's because those industries were the ones that boomed right during the pandemic. And so now we're, I think, having this reset backwards, this readjustment towards closer to the old normal. And to me, the question is, what is the post-pandemic normal economy settle down to? I have no idea. And I think that we could well be in for some undulations where like services over hires, and then it turns out there was a big boom of demand and somewhat the way that there was a big boom of demand for stuff right after World War II. And then that kind of settles down and they have to lay off. I think we're just going to unfortunately have to wait and see how everything resolves itself before we really know whether this is going to broaden or whether it's pretty much going to be localized to the industries that had wild expansion during the pandemic. And most of the tech companies are still have way more people employed than they did before the pandemic. So it's not like they're like lower than it was in the pandemic. Yeah, it's not even reversion to the mean with the exception of Twitter, which I think actually is is now well below its pre-pandemic staffing levels. In 2020, I think Twitter has actually gone down, possibly Peloton. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the numbers. Now, a lot of people have called the last few years like the everything bubble. Do you think that's a good description of what happened in the economy? My working model of what happened in the economy, which could well be wrong, is that you did see this massive Fed balance sheet expansion that followed the financial crisis and never really got unwound and now is having to be put back that indeed a rising tide of money lifts almost all boats. It just seemed like there were no uncorrelated assets. Yeah, it's like the old joke that in a recession, all correlations go to, or in a financial crisis, all correlations go to one. Well, it turns out in the recovery from a financial crisis, all correlations also go to one. (laughs) Yeah, everything was getting lifted at once because there was so much money slashing around. Now, was that just the Fed? Was that the infamous global savings glut where there are just more people who want to invest than have productive investments to make, and that's driving down the price of money. I don't know. I think there's still a lot to be figured out about that. We're still figuring out why we didn't have inflation for so long with all this easy money and then suddenly did have a bunch of inflation. But yeah, I think that there was a lot of froth because cheap money just makes it so easy to do so many things. It makes it easier for consumers to spend. It makes housing go up, which makes consumers feel wealthier, so they spend even more. It makes companies expand. It makes all of these things happen. And you know, part of the question is, can we like gently soft landing from that? Or 
do we just have to have a rude awakening at some point? I have no idea. Now, you have historically been like a big defender of markets, which is going out of favor, both on the left and now also on the right. Where is this skepticism of markets coming from? Well, for one thing, I think like markets often, they're clarifying, but in a way we don't necessarily like, right? They tell us things we don't want to hear. They tell us that someone's labor can be valued at less than the amount that is required to feed and house them in a modern competitive economy. We don't like that. And we blame the markets rather than the fact that a market is ultimately just us. It's another word for us. We blame the market rather than the fact that we don't value that person's labor. There has been historically a problem too, though, that we confuse the value of someone's labor with the value of the person, right? And I think that those are very separate things that you have in it worth as a human being that is not connected to your labor market outcomes, but that people want to somehow correct the labor market to deliver what they feel someone's in it worth as a human is rather than saying, well, those two things are separate. We owe you a decent minimum, but we don't interfere to like mess with your wages to make you feel like you are valued more highly by the market than you are because value on the market is not the only thing that matters. And I think in some ways, it is a reaction for people who overvalued the market, who wanted to do things that markets don't do. Markets are really efficient at distributing resources and pricing. And they're not necessarily good at delivering meaning. You kind of have to generate that for yourself. That's a non-market thing. And I think maybe one of the reasons that people are down on markets is that they expected too much from them. They expected markets to provide everything instead of a lot of stuff. And then you go and your family and your community and those things, we've detached from community. We've allowed like the entertainment options available on the market often to detach us from those things that are the things that provide the deeper meaning that people want. And so rather than going back, and because we're so used to being consumers now, because the consumer function is so well-developed in our society, we keep going back to that as like, we want the government to provide the meaning. We want someone else, we're going to buy, we're going to somehow pay someone else to provide things that actually, you know what, they're only available on a volunteer basis. (laughs) The only way to get them is sweat equity. There's no price mechanism that can deliver meaning or connection or loyalty or all of these other deep human values that I think we do need in our lives. You have said a couple of times when if there's a market failure in maybe the case of monopolies and duopolies in tech, that maybe the government should step in. How should we understand like when should the government step in or how should we think about that? I tend to be very skeptical of those interventions for a few reasons. I've been arguing against antitrust intervention since 2003 when it was the left. No, even earlier than that, 2000. Two, I think was my first piece against antitrust for Microsoft. And that was when that was pushed by the left. And now often the right is, I am skeptical because I think that a lot of these tech markets do converge to one. Google, I think, is just was a natural monopoly. Maybe it's not now with Bing, but maybe Microsoft has come by and innovated past that. I'm now on the wait list. If they are natural monopolies. That does often result in anti-competitive behavior. It it makes it very hard for other companies to innovate. It makes innovation move at a much slower rate. Is there anything we can do about that? Well, I mean, if it's really a natural monopoly, anti-competitive behavior is a way to maintain an unnatural monopoly. If there's actually just a natural monopoly where like, there is naturally one player in this market just because the economies of scale or the network effects or some other effect are so great, it's just inefficient to have more than one player. I think that's a different problem from anti-competitive behavior, right? We can regulate anti-competitive behavior, but honestly, 
How much good did this end up doing? Look at Microsoft as a good example of that. We were fixated on whether Internet Explorer was going to destroy the internet industry. And it turned out, A, no. Internet Explorer wasn't that good. It was never that good. Placing it on the desktop didn't help that much. And eventually, it kind of went away. Who still uses Internet Explorer rather than Chrome and something else? Now, again, these things cycle and it can change. But I think Facebook is another example of something that looked like it had an incredibly durable monopoly right up to the point where TikTok came along and started eating its lunch. I am suspicious on those grounds. And I'm also suspicious because often who gets enforced against has more to do with, you see this with Twitter, right? Everyone is obsessed with Twitter. Twitter does not have a monopoly on anything except the attention of journalists, which granted, extremely important. But why is everyone obsessed with it? Because it is the attention of journalists, because it's a high status thing in Washington. And so everyone's obsessed with smashing Twitter, even though Twitter's real world impact is actually pretty minimal. It doesn't have a monopoly. Anyone can come along and make another thing that people want to go to. I mean, I think it has some network effect mode. I actually think that whatever replaces Twitter is unlikely to be very like Twitter. I wrote that about Mastodon. But I don't think that it's somehow impossible to compete with Twitter. I just don't think that it is. But we get obsessed with it because it's very politically salient. And we ignore Apple because Apple's cool and they make our phones and we like them. I mean, these choices are often not super wisely made. But I also just think, give it time. Often these antitrust, IBM is a perfect example, huge antitrust suit. By the time it actually resolved, Microsoft had already displaced IBM as like the major computing power. You recently wrote a piece called Why Eggs Are Cheaper Than You Think. You kind of took on some of the talk about inflation. Where are prices going in kind of a broader context? Predicting inflation is impossible. <laughs> like I think over time- Not for, But like where you're saying- eggs are actually cheaper than you think and all these different types of things. What are some other like maybe non-obvious wisdom about what's going on today? Oh gosh, non-obvious wisdom about what's going on today. I mean, like I think the thing to remember with all of this is like we are so much richer than we have ever been and we are continually getting richer, but in ways that aren't necessarily as obvious as they were a hundred years ago. If you think about the life of my great-grandmother who hilariously enough lived on a chicken farm, her household was probably spending 50 hours a week preparing food. Now, that wasn't only her labor. My grandmother participated, other people participated, but that's a huge amount of time compared to what we now spend, which is under 10 hours for a household. Uber Eats or yeah. DoorDash. <laughs> Part of that, like grocery store processed foods, everything. You think about all of the things that didn't exist, flash frozen vegetables, basically only invented after World War II, massive improvement in quality compared to what had been available before for most of the year, right? The fresh produce you got in season was better than what we normally eat, but that was only available for a very brief window. Anyone who has had a garden knows you've got tomatoes for a month and a half and they're amazing and then there are no more tomatoes. That's how most people lived most of the time. Usually the squirrels eat them anyway, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But if you think of the transformation from my great-grandmother's life to like how my grandmother was living in 1950, it's just massive. She's got a washing machine, so it doesn't take all day to do laundry. And there's, if you look at ads from the 1930s, it's amazing. They talk about that Monday evening feeling, and you're like, what is the Monday? And it turns out that doing laundry by hand is so physically tiring that by the end of the day, you're just completely wiped out and exhausted. <laughs> because if you're lifting all of those wet everything from one tub to another, massive physical labor, that's gone. My grandmother had a washing machine washing dishes by hand. She had a dishwasher. She has a refrigerator that keeps food cold. So she doesn't have to go to the grocery store every day the way that people often did back then. She has all of these labor savings. She has a 
oven with a thermostat on it and it doesn't need coal to be fed into it every few hours to keep the fire going. Just a massive reduction in labor. And that's a very visible, highly visible change in the way that people are living. Now, I think a lot of our innovation is in things like cell phones, internet, that's all amazing innovations, but also things like biomedical stuff where antibiotics was something that touched everyone's life almost immediately. Now we have a cure for hepatitis C. Well, most people don't get hepatitis C, so they don't know about it, but it's still pretty amazing that you have this thing. You have that option out there, but you don't know about it. There's a lot of innovation like that where there's a lot of stuff going on. And then there's all sorts of invisible innovations and like logistics. And they're all making our lives better. They're making things cheaper. They're making goods more broadly available, but we don't see them. It's just this incremental, tiny quality goes up. How much better are our cars than they used to be? They're safer, but they also last longer. But that's not something that's How as do you respond easily... to there's like from Tyler Cowan to Peter Thiel basically saying that the innovation, while still happening, is really happening at a much, much lower rate. Something happened in the 70s that really made this innovation start to decline pretty dramatically, safetyism, et cetera. How do you respond to that? No, I worry about some of that, actually. I think that that's a fair critique. Although I think maybe what happened in the 1970s is just that oil is no longer cheap and that much of the global slowdown in in GDP, which in productivity, which happens at the same time, is we're just just no longer applying as much physical energy. Well, maybe fusions on the horizon or safer fission or things that could make power the dream of too cheap to meter. Maybe we'll start applying more power to things and productivity will go back up. I do worry about what's happening in science on a lot of fronts. On the one hand, I think what we saw during the pandemic was amazing. Is people are bypassing peer review. They're just putting stuff out there. You've got this incredibly rapid generative process that is producing amazing information, amazing new insights constantly. But I think that also exposed some of the weaknesses in the peer review system. It exposed how slow, how gate-kept science is. There are good things about the gatekeeping. We definitely saw a bunch of garbage science coming out that would catch on with in some quarters. And you saw garbage treatments. You saw garbage tests. There were things that are worrisome about not having gatekeepers. But on the other hand, what we saw was without the gatekeepers, how fast innovation is able to go. And I think you worry about the old saw that science proceeds one funeral at a time. I worry that the way that we're funding science, the way that journals are gatekeeping, the way that we are hiring and tenuring scientists, where increasingly you go through this long period of doing postdocs and you need so many publications and so forth. We're turning it into kind of an assembly line and genius is not created on an assembly line. People are much older now when they're getting grants. So the age has gone up. They're way more specialized. And people are most creative, tend to be most creative in their 20s and 30s. So the fact that you're now like you get your lab when you're 45 is bad. These are bad things. I'm exaggerating. It's not true that everyone has to wait till they're 45 to get a lab. Even if you think of university presidents, not that long ago, there were a lot of university presidents in their 30s. I don't know if there are any major university presidents in their 30s or even 40s anymore. I worry about sclerosis in science and in innovation more generally, and I worry about regulatory overkill, where we're so worried about the downsides that we forget that there's a lot of upsides. And so I would like to see us look at reforming how we do, certainly on the funding side, how we fund innovation and so forth. And as you know, I wrote a book on failure, and I would also like us to be a little more failure-friendly in the private sector. Let's talk a little bit about politics or institute observer How quickly do you think the overturn window is widening and what's kind of driving that change? I'm not sure it is. Okay, good. Let's hear it. 
I'm a huge opponent of Overton window arguments in general. So there's a trivially true argument, which is that the possibility space in politics shifts over time as culture shifts. But the whole activist notion of we're going to shift the Overton window, I think, is generally a steaming hot pile of garbage. As I've (laughs) written, because like the way the activists think about it almost always is instead of like, we're going to go out there and we're just going to be like really winsome and persuasive and people are going to love us. And then eventually they're going to realize that we're right because they love us and we're good people. That's not how the activists think. What they think is we're going to go out there and angrily demand something crazy. There's this whole thing like, ask for the stars, you'll get the moon. They have this really, really terrible movie derived idea about how negotiation works where like whatever you want, just if you come in with the higher ask, then you'll split the difference and you'll get more of what you want. Well, I mean, first of all, this is a strategy the other side can use. And second of all, it doesn't work. It's used in movies because it's easy to explain in under a minute. People are confusing movies with real life. In real life, if you walk in and you ask for something insane, I'm sure you know this. If you just come in, like imagine if you go into negotiate for a car and you come in and you're like, I want to pay $3 for this brand new Toyota Camry. The dealer is not going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll split the difference with them. The dealer is going to be like, this person is insane and wasting my time. And similarly, if the dealer was like, I want you to pay me $500,000 for this Camry, you would be like, I'm going to go find a dealer who is not insane. So what activists often do is they make very extreme demands on the thought that they're going to shift the Overton window and then the politicians who are more aligned with their side will be able to get more. Well, in fact, what they often do is alienate voters. Yeah, they push people almost to the other side. It's like the left people might push people to the right or the right people push people to the left or something because they alienate them. Yeah, exactly. You saw this with healthcare a lot where people were like, what we're going to do is we're going to demand Medicare for all and then we'll settle on the public option. And like, that's not how it works. Because you demanded Medicare for all, and then people thought, oh, the people advocating for healthcare change are lunatic socialists. We'll demand single payer and we'll get Medicare for all. Medicare for all was a better slogan than single payer, which was a lot of what you and why one of the reasons that they settled on that after Obamacare. But like people thought if we make this really extreme demand, we'll get half of what we want. And that's just not how it works. The solution space is set by a lot of stuff. It's set by what interest groups in the sector and like changing the language or making extreme demands does not change their incentives. Doctors don't want to get paid less. The fact that you demanded single payer is not going to make them any friendlier to the public option unless actually a lot of people wanted single payer and they have a reason to compromise. But a lot of people didn't want single payer. No one wanted their health care touched. And so I think that there's a lot of bad thinking in politics around making really extreme demands and moving the Overton window. And it is related to this other set of bad thinking in politics around, well, we're not going to try to persuade people. We're going to mobilize our base. And neither of these strategies works. These are strategies that have failed over and over again. The problem is that there's Freddie DeBoer talks about this, the subsacker, the iron law of institutions, where the incentives within the institutions are not the same as the incentives outside of the institutions. If your incentive is to actually make political change, then you actually often want to be quite moderate. You want to come up with slogans like Medicare for all rather than single payer, even though it's the same thing. And also still not popular, but more popular than single payer. You want to come up with persuasive ideas that are like not twice what you want, but half of what you want or a quarter of what you want or a tenth of what you want that you can get. But the problem is within an institution where you're all dedicated to the cause, 
often what maximizes your personal power as an activist within that institution is being extreme. Because that means that you are the true believer. You are the person with a big vision. And also, like donors tend to like big vision and not tiny increments. They didn't get rich to get a 0.01% change in the amount of spending on Medicare. They got rich and donated money in order to leave the world markedly changed. And so all of those incentives have created a system where activists and also I've finally said the funding, a lot of their funding that comes from foundations and the foundations themselves, like they're just sitting on a big pile of money. They want big vision change, not teeny, 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 tiny incremental policy change. And so all of those incentives have pushed activists towards focusing on these Overton window and these base mobilization strategies that do not, in fact, work. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I feel very strongly about this. No, that was great. I loved it. You recently wrote a column that Generation X is shifting toward the right. Now, is that just, okay, when people get older, they tend to be a little bit more conservative, or is that actually something about the Generation X generation? I think there are a few things going on there. One is I'm not even sure how much we've shifted. The fact is that my generation is the generation that came of age during Reagan and Bush. And so one thing that we know is that who you vote for in your first presidential election tends to be somewhat sticky. And so over time, you are more likely to keep voting for that party. If your first time you voted was 84, 88 with a big landslide or something like that. You remember those days fondly. So that's one thing. A lot of Generation X was 92, 96 or 2000. Yeah, my first vote was Casper Clinton in 1992. And yes, there's a lot of that as well. The second thing is that we are kind of at the nadir of our personal happiness right now. (laughs) We're in the, there's this U-shaped happiness curve and your 40s is where your happiness trows. So all younger viewers, listeners, you have this to look forward to. Older people, congratulations, you're on the upswing. Those of us in our 40s just suffer. Basically, when people have kids, they are less happy than before they had kids or after their kids leave the house is kind of the common thing. I'm not even sure that's it because it's apparently they think that they can see it in animals too. Oh, And I think it has something to do with the fact that when you're young, you're full of energy, everything's in front of you, you're immortal, and you can still be anything. You could be a second baseman for the Yankees. When you're in your 50s and 60s, you've done most of what you're going to do, but you're a lot less anxious about it. You're content. You are content. So part of it is, yes, it's, this is the hard time. Your parents are getting old. You have to deal with that. Your kids are often in their like neediest and also for you, the most anxious phase where you're trying to get them into college and like they're teenagers and they're wild and you just wonder what the heck has come to the kids these days. <laughs> but a lot of it is coping with your own mortality. Your body is breaking. At least mine is. I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> but Random stuff started going wrong in my 40s. You have to come to terms with all of that, with the fact that you're losing energy, you're more tired, things are just harder, and everything things get overwhelming. And I think that that is part of it. And I also think, yeah, people tend to get more conservative as they get older because they have more to conserve and they also have less to gain from taking risks. And this is something I actually would just worry about broadly for society is that aging societies are going to be less innovative because if you think about just the incentive structure, if you start a company when you're 35 and it's super successful by the time you're 45, that gives you 30 years to enjoy all of your wealth and prestige and so forth. If you do that same thing when you're 55, the return on this is just much lower, the lifetime return. 
And so that changes your incentives. And then we also know that, in fact, just apart from that, older people tend to be more risk averse. They're constitutionally, emotionally more risk averse. And I think that that's part of it, too. And when you combine all the fact with Joe Biden is president and there's a lot of inflation. And if you're in some industries, there's some layoffs. Now, I think that that could reverse. It'll be interesting to see what happens by 2024. But when you're kind of in a bad mood already and you're really grumpy and things go wrong. And you have the pandemic and stuff. And yeah, you're just not inclined to be charitable towards whoever happens to be in power. Speaking of 2024, like, what do you think some of the defining issues are going to be? I don't even really know what the defining issues are right now. It it seems to be a hodgepodge of stuff. It's just us versus them, but I don't even know what the issues are. Is it still going to be like an issue thing or is it still going to, it's just this tribal stuff that we're just going to continue to happen for a while? That's an interesting question. And I go back to your predictions are hard, especially about the future, but here are some (laughs) thoughts. Number one, I think almost everything, the most defining question is, is there going to be a recession between now and 2024? If there is, I think Joe Biden is not going to get reelected and it almost doesn't matter what he does. And if there isn't, I think there's a good chance that he gets reelected just because voters tend to stick with what's working. And so that's one thought. The second thought is, yes, I think culture war, Republicans are really, really into the culture war. The left is pretty into the culture war too. Conservatives complain not unfairly about the Republicans pounce framing that the media often puts on things where like Democrats do something really, really stupid. And the framing is Republicans have pounced on the stupid thing rather than Democrats did something really, really stupid. (laughs) And so I think that the culture war is often reactive and Democrats feel like they're victims. But in fact, often they were the aggressor. The, The left was the aggressor and the Republicans fought back. But at this point, yeah, the culture war. I don't even know that it's the most popular thing among the Republican base in that I think that the Republican base wants a lot of stuff that's normal, like they want good economy, they want opportunity for their kids, et cetera. But it's the thing that everyone can agree on. It's like, we don't have to fight about trade or immigration. What can we all agree on? Some of the crazy trainings you've seen in schools where like objectivity is a white supremacist value. We can all agree that's wrong. And it's more fun to talk about, A, things we can all agree on. And B, things that the other side has done that make the other side look bad. Those are the most fun things to talk about. This is also true on the left. They love finding some random third tier state legislature who said something racist because we can all agree racism is bad. And it's really fun to talk about how terrible the other side is. And so I think that that's a lot of the energy. You've seen this with DeSantis. He is setting himself up to run for president basically just by painting himself as the culture warrior. And he's really good at it. He's choosing the right battles. I'm going to leave aside the normative question of whether they're good battles, but politically, he's choosing the right battles. I don't know that much about politics, but it seems like there are people both on the left and the right who like primarily get their power through talking about it. And then there are a very small number of people who actually do something and get their power from doing. And it does seem like DeSantis and there are people who hate him and people who love him. But I think the reason why people hate him and the people love him is that he does stuff. He actually gets stuff done, whereas like other people maybe don't have as much love or hate because they just talk and they're not necessarily getting the things done. And if you're on the other side of DeSantis, you probably fear him much more because he is pretty effective at getting the stuff done. Maybe like, I don't know, maybe Obama was effective on the left or something. Obama was actually, he was effective at doing healthcare stuff. He got Obamacare through, which was a major, 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 regardless of what you think about Obamacare, major legislative achievement. 
the stuff he did on the culture war stuff, which I think actually ended up being disastrous unintentionally, was he gave his activists a lot of power. He would appoint them to key places that they wanted to be. And he was like, oh, that's a cheap thing. They just want this appointment to like the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. I don't care about that. Well, it turns out that the Office of Civil Rights then went ahead and issued, among other things, the Dear Colleague letter on campus rape that basically encouraged schools to strip due process and to lean very heavily on the side of convicting accusers, mostly boys. These laws have not been applied equally to girls. So you've had situations where- Convicting the accused, you mean? Convicting the accused, yes. Schools would say there's two students, they're equally drunk. If they violated sexual assault policy, they mutually violated with each other, but only the boy gets charged. And then it's these kangaroo courts where they're not entitled to a lawyer, they can have a representative, they can't cross-examine their accuser, et cetera, et cetera. That turned out to be a very powerful culture war issue. And not just for the right, by the way, because it turns out that like a lot of nice progressive moms have sons and they're super worried about this happening to their kid. And so he gave a bunch of power to people just kind of as a payoff. And then they went and did stuff that I think your colleague letter was a mistake, but also they kind of inadvertently convinced evangelicals that they faced an actual existential threat, that their institutions were going to be shut down by the government. But wouldn't you expect that of any Democrat or Republican president to throw some meat at the people either on their left or on their right to help them out a little bit, to put them in positions? Wouldn't that be true of any president? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But they were not wise in what they allowed those groups to do. They allowed those groups, for example, to go after the little sisters of the poor to try to force them to provide contraception for their workers. Well, forcing nuns to buy birth control was just not a popular position. And they belatedly offered compromises that the little sisters of the poor rejected, which the left kind of like clings to as well, it was really their fault. No, you should have just not gone after the nuns. That was politically (laughs) stupid. And you should not have let your interest groups do that. You should not be cooperating with the ACLU when it tries to sue Catholic hospitals out of existence for not providing abortions. These things are just a bad look for the left and should not be done. And the Obama administration was not good at reining it in. And so the transition I saw during the Obama administration, for a lot of reasons, but the actual administration had a lot to do with it, is that Orthodox Christians became convinced that if they didn't fight back, literally their churches, their schools would be shut down. They themselves would not be allowed to have any job more important than janitor. And that translated into a strong willingness to vote for Donald Trump. Abortion's a big issue for those people. They were willing to go to the mat. And when he promised pro-life judges, that's one thing. But a lot of people said, well, if it's between that and my kid's school being shut down, I guess I picked Donald Trump. That was just an own goal. It was unnecessary because these wins were very small. How many people work for the Little Sisters of the Poor? Find a private charity to provide birth control for 100% of those workers and like be done with it. And instead, you got this win that was actually a big loss. Speaking of cancel culture, I've asked a number of guests if we're at peak cancel culture. And actually, the general consensus has been yes, which I'm somewhat surprised. Do you agree with that? Or have we rounded the corner on that? I do. I think that we've rounded the corner. And I think the telling moment is you saw this with, there was an open letter organized by GLAAD, the LGBTQ rights organization. It was actually two open letters. There was one of people who have written for, worked for, somehow contributed to the New York Times. There was a bunch of activist organizations had their own open letter. The release was coordinated at the same time. Basically, 
saying that the New York Times had been transphobic in its coverage of youth medical transition and other sort of transition, socially transitioning kids at school without telling the parents. There were basically like three or four articles over the course of 18 months. And they did this big open letter. And I think if that had happened 18 months ago, you would have seen a very different reaction. What actually happened now is that the New York Times said, we're proud of our reporting, we stand by our reporting, and we will not tolerate any journalist who works for us attacking their colleagues or allying with activist groups. And that was a big, big shift from what was happening 18 months ago. And I think that it speaks to a broader shift in the culture, which is that I think there are a bunch of reasons this has happened. And one is that the marginal value of the targets went down the longer this went on. At the beginning, if you think about Me Too is a good example of this. The first thing is Harvey Weinstein. And everyone agrees that he's a slime and he's now going to prison. And Terrible person. Terrible person who terribly abused his, his position. But then you quickly move to like Aziz Ansari, who as far as I can do is a comedian for those who don't know. And there's this big Me Too article about him, which boiled down to he's kind of a gross date. But like, that's not assault. It's not anything. He's maybe a bad date. Well, I'm not going to cancel someone because they're a bad date. And I'm not even sure he was a bad date. You can argue about how bad a date he was, but it boils down to he didn't assault anyone. He didn't force anyone to stay. He just didn't provide the date experience that the woman who was writing about him wanted. That makes people suspicious. I think there was a lot of overreach. I think that people started to notice, I mean, like someone said that Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times recently had a column where she highlighted a nonprofit head who basically said something that I think I've heard a lot from other people is like, this is enabling the most toxic people in the organization to just grab this microphone and destroy the organization with their toxicity. And because they have wrapped themselves in the cloak of morality, no one seems to be able to say like, hey, what you're doing is super destructive. Netflix recently had, they had maybe we're giving a bit to it in the past and then maybe starting at some point in mid-2022, they shifted their own. They're a big, I think, bellwether for creatives and how people think about creativity. Well, I think one thing is that what people realize is the old Rudyard Kipling line, once you pay the Dane geld, you never get rid of the Dane. People had originally thought like, oh, I'll just buy them off. I'll give them a little bit to keep them quiet. And it turned out that didn't keep them quiet. It just made them say, oh, there's more loot to be had swords up, let's go. And so I think that's part of it. And I also think that there's a kind of fashion in things too, is people get tired of whatever the kids were obsessed about five years ago is whatever the next group of kids is going to reject and want their own thing. And so to the extent that this was a youth movement, I think the next generation of youth just wanted something different. And I also think that to go back to what we talked about with the bubble, as resources get tighter you are less interested in like keeping people on staff who are distracting you with a lot of political arguments rather than doing the core work. And I also think one final thing I'll say is that I think people have started to get a little bit of perspective about Twitter in a way that they did not have two years ago. And I've been banging this drum for a long time. I have a thing that I like to call the Texas high school football stadium test. In the state of Texas, there are 87 football stadiums that hold more than 10,000 people. And 10,000 people is like a really big cancellation mob. Much smaller mobs have caused companies to fire people and do all sorts of things. And so what I always say is, before you say, like, we have to do something, everyone's talking about this on Twitter, I want you to strike that sentence and rewrite it as, we have to do something. The Katie Tigers fan base is super mad at us. How many companies would fire someone because a high school football stadium full of fans is mad at them? None of them. 
it's one town in Texas. We can do without that market. Social media just hijacks our perceptions. It feels like it's like everyone. And if you think about this, the well, Katie Tiger it's, it's a little harder. In social media, they can go after you. They're in your feed all the time. They can go after they people are, who talk about it's an you. Illusion. And- if you ignore these people, nothing happens. Nothing happens to your product. I think Basecamp, which basically just told people, like, look, if you want to do politics here, that's not the place for it. Go find somewhere else to do that. And like a third of their staff left. It was really traumatic in the short term, but I think they're happier now. Yeah, maybe nothing happens in the long term, but in the short term, it is very traumatic for everyone who's going through it. I'm sure there are some people with very thick skin that are okay with it, but most people, it's like a very, very, very tough time. And you can imagine why they give in because it's like, it's like well, I might as well just give in because it's a little bit easier to give in than to deal with it. I want to distinguish between people and companies. I now have a totally thick skin. I got brigaded for the first time in 2002. It was terrible. I loudly threatened to leave the internet. I did leave for like three weeks and then I couldn't resist and I came back and started blocking <laughs> again. But I've been brigaded over and over. At the worst of it, getting pictures of my house emailed to me with a gun site superimposed over it. Oh my gosh. Various rape, et cetera, fantasy slash threats, theatrical imaginations about how me or my family might be shot, dismembered, et cetera. It's traumatic. It's terrible. And you do eventually grow a thick enough skin to the point where my mother had someone who went a little bit crazy and was sending her nasty emails of the sort of like the world would be better off without you in it. She understandably freaked out. (laughs) And she was like, should I file a restraining order? And I was like, mom, 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 it's okay. I get death threats all the time and they never do anything. And it turns out that the words mom, I get death threats all the time in no way calm mothers down. Never, (laughs) never do they. It's a bad idea. Yeah. I will never tell my mother that any situation. Never tell that. (laughs) But I mean, like the fact is like they never do do anything. I have my mental category of like, when do I get worried is actually the people who sound like they're paranoid. The people who are trying to give you a gentle warning. Like, I know you're helping the CIA spy on me through my feelings. And if you don't stop, I will have to take action. That person (laughs) I call the police for because that person is serious. But the people who are just trying to scare you, any reaction you have, they win. So I just refuse to react. But for a company, it's different. If you're Disney, that's just not an excuse. HR has to have the iron will to just be like, some people are mad on the internet. And in two minutes, they're not going to be mad anymore. They're going to be mad about something else. Because here's the thing is like, at least the Katy Tigers fan base has to get in their cars. It's hot in Texas during football season. They have to go sit out there in the hot sun or I don't know, it's, it's night. But you know, they had to make an effort. Retweet is no effort. Share on Facebook, no effort. And they're just showing off for their friends. Ignore them. If you've done something wrong, you should apologize for it because you did something wrong. But you should not fire someone or apologize for something because some lunatic on the internet is mad about it. And just generally, I think stop catering to lunatics is very good advice for social media and for all of this is some objections are correct and should be addressed because they're correct. But like the fact that people are angry and screaming about it does not make it more urgent to address. It means some people are angry and screaming on the internet. People go on the internet for the sole purpose of getting angry and screaming. That's a huge amount. It's not just the internet. That's why people watch TV news too. They love it. Yes. Because it's like an addiction. And I think that over time, I have tried to dial down the amount of my content that is feeding that addiction. Because I think the thing about being angry, right, is when you're angry, you can't be anxious. You can't be worried about your own mortality or whether your kids are going to succeed or like what you have to do or who likes you or whether you said something wrong last night at a dinner party. All you can be thinking about is how terrible that person you're angry at is. (laughs) And so it's actually like it suppresses all these other negative emotions, but it's in the same way that 
It's like Prozac or something. <laughs> I think it's more like taking opioids. Oh, it temporarily suppresses those feelings, but the cost is extremely high. First of all, you're making yourself a person who is less likely to resolve the problems that are making you anxious. For sure. They push people away. If what you're worried about is like, I don't have as many connections to other people as I thought I would. I feel lonely. And now I can feel like this feeling of solidarity by going out and collectively yelling at some stranger. Well, you've actually made yourself a less attractive person to hang out with, which was what you actually really wanted was to have real connections to other people, not fake two minutes hate connections to other people. And I think just in a lot of ways, it's this really counterproductive activity, but it's so seductive. It's so easy to do. And so I personally like try to tamp down how much of it I consume. And the interesting thing is like, as I've pulled back from it, I just now often I log onto Twitter and I look at people getting mad about whatever the new thing to get mad about. (laughs) And I just kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, this is so boring. Why do I even want to get into like, I could get mad at this and I will forget it in three minutes. And why bother? This is not worth my time anymore. And I think that it is seductive. And so I think you have to just remember a lot of the screaming on Twitter is that it is people attempting to deal with their own problems in a really unproductive way by getting mad at anything. They're just looking for stuff. They're going on the internet all day, just trying skating from thing to thing, looking for the thing to be mad about. And I think about my column about eggs to go back to that. (laughs) That was a column because I had written a column I knew it was going to be a controversial subject. It was on youth social transition and whether schools should hide it from parents. And I thought, I need to give my editors a rest, right? I need something (laughs) that is not going to like make anyone upset. Let's talk about how the price of eggs has fallen over 100 years and how great that is. That was more controversial than the other columns. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yes, like the left was really mad. I did have a paragraph talking about factory farming and the risks, but I hadn't spent enough time on that. I had praised capitalism. The right was mad because I was excusing Joe Biden's inflationary America. And like, guys, you're just looking for something to get mad at. This was not a political statement. This was not about politics. It was price just about- The price of eggs about, is going down over 100 years. The price years, of eggs yeah. has gone down over 100 <laughs> years is not a political statement. And you are manufacturing something because you are so desperate to be angry that you cannot even accept good news when it's handed to you. You recently wrote a column calling 2023 the first post-pandemic year. And it does seem that way. It seems like COVID is in some ways is still there. We're still doing more stuff on Zoom. We're still remote working more and stuff. But it does seem like we're not in the depths of it. What are some non-obvious effects from the pandemic that are going to be with us for a very long time? I think one is we have to think about like what our city is going to look like. At the moment, they've got these donut holes in the middle of them. And I think that we haven't thought about really the kinds of changes that are going to be needed because it goes beyond transit. All of the systems, all the infrastructure of these cities is built to a certain scale. It doesn't necessarily work without that scale. So mass transit is a good example of something that is financially non-viable in a lot of places, even arguably environmentally non-viable. If you're running a lot of empty buses, doesn't make sense. It's actually bad for the environment. But if you run fewer buses, then you get into a death spiral where they don't come frequently enough and people don't want to take them. There's all of these problems that are actually huge problems. And I think we are still thinking through, and I think the city is really going to change in form. And I don't know exactly how that is going to shake out. I think exurbs are going to be more popular, places that you're not going to commute two hours each way, most people. But if you're doing that only two or three days a week, it becomes a more viable I could have more space. I think demand for housing has gone up because people now want 
office space in their homes. And also, I think things like open floor plans are now less popular, I'm told. I don't have any scientific research to back that up. I just heard it from an interior decorator, but it makes total sense. I've always been an open floor plan opponent. And people found out during the pandemic, they're really noisy and crowded. (laughs) You have no place to go and get privacy. And so the more you're in your home, the more you're actually going to want the ability to wall off spaces where people can be private. I think social breakdown is something that I think about a lot. And I think you see this in so many places. You see more air rage, restaurants and so forth. They're complaining about more customers behaving badly. You're seeing more reckless driving. And my theory of this is that there's something called founder effects where like it's the reason that we all speak English, even though most of us do not derive our ancestry from countries where English was the first language. And that's also, by the way, true even of Irish people like me, whose family came over during the famine. My family would not have spoken English when they got here because they were from the west of Ireland. But because the first people had English and they were all one group, and then there's a bunch of little groups that don't have a common language, basically the founders swamp the latecomers. I think what you've seen is that when you withdrew the most risk-averse, rule-following people from the public, what happened was that the people who remained were on average, I'm not saying each individual, but on average, the average of the group was less rule following, more reckless, more risk averse. And so you have seen, I think, actually a real decline in social norms. And it turns out that you need to constantly maintain social norms. They're not just innate and they stay there. If you pull the people out who are the most risk averse and the most norm following, then the people left, I think you get to a worse equilibrium. What do you mean pulling people out? How did they get pulled out? We all stayed home for two years. Oh, got it. Okay. The most risk averse people we're not in public for two years. And so they're not maintaining those norms of like, we don't drive recklessly. I saw this because I remember I had to drive up to Massachusetts early in the pandemic because my dad got COVID, was one of the first people to get COVID in April of 2020. And so my sister and I drove up and I think I can now confess that, I mean, we did like 90, 95, almost the entire way because the roads were totally empty. There was no one on the roads. And it was actually like, it was reasonably safe to go that fast with a completely empty highway. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, on some of these highways. (laughs) But what I then saw was that the people who'd gotten used to that, they kept doing it as the roads filled up again. I mean, I have seen driving behavior in the last two years that is insane. And I'm from DC. So you think it's worse today than it was in 2019? I think it's much worse. I was driving in California recently and people just literally cutting in with like this much space, weaving in and out of traffic. And like, where do you have to go that's that important? Is there a pregnant woman crowning in the front seat of your car right now? Because otherwise, slow the hell down. What are you doing? You're going to kill someone. And that behavior has really changed. And I think that that's a lot of the who stayed home and who was out on the roads and that we got to new norms and now we're having real trouble enforcing the old norms. A related thing is I think kids have forgotten how to study. If you talk to teachers, they just forgot. And it turns out that you need to like be doing this continually. It's not something you can stop for two years and restart very easily. And I think that actually one of the weird insights that I've I've had from the pandemic is something I kind of knew, which is one thing about industrialization that we forget is that it's actually really hard to train people to show up for a job on time and work eight hours. Very hard. That took a long time. It took a long time in Western Europe. It took a long time in Japan. It took a long time everywhere. That's actually one of the hardest things about industrialization is just getting people used to the idea that that's how work works. And what schools were doing in large part was training kids to do that. And when we stopped, it's really hard to start again. 
it needs to be a continuous process to be socialized to do this. And now teachers are really struggling to make up for those lost years of socialization. Those are very important for like smart people. A lot of smart people have been like optimizing for things like financial gain. I know you've written a lot about this. It would also be great for smart people and people to be optimizing for things like curing disease or doing innovation or changing the world in the right way. How do we incentivize people to orient their careers differently? Or is that even possible? One way, the obvious way is as you get more money, there's a great book called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth by Benjamin Friedman, which argues that as we get richer, we actually get more moral. We're nicer to people. We fulfill the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and are now willing to move up to other things, which means how do we think about that? What are we rewarding status-wise? Are we rewarding people who invent stuff? Are we rewarding people who innovate? And I think that that's, on the one hand, a real possibility for improving people going into teaching, people going into other stuff. But I think there's a downside to that, which is that the systems that already work pretty well, right? Like our medical innovation is pretty great. We do a lot of biomedical innovation. I'm not saying it couldn't be better. It definitely could, but we're doing really well. And that internal status battles can actually slow that down. You have to think carefully about how you reward that because otherwise what you don't want is people competing for status on stuff that doesn't actually enhance innovation. One way you can compete for status is by suppressing alternate theories that compete with yours, which is a problem in all sorts of science and other things. Certainly a problem in journalism. It's a problem in, in most industries. The good way to reward things is to actually generate what you want. But all compensation systems, whether they're monetary or non-monetary, are vulnerable to gaming. And so we have to think about whether it's financial incentives or other what are we actually rewarding? Are we rewarding the appearance of doing good or rewarding actually doing good? And I think often we are rewarding the appearance of doing good over the actuality of it. And that's something that we need to think about. The financial system can be a good mechanism for that. I would love to see us think about how do we finance it though? Patents are one way to finance medical innovation. I believe in biomedical patents, but also we could do prizes. We could do more prizes for like $2 billion if you cure malaria or whatever. We could do more of that and try to harness financial rewards. And then the other thing I would say is, what are people who already have so much money that they're now competing for status and legacy and meaning? What are they funding and how are they funding it? My nonprofit friends, for example, complain that no one wants to fund overhead, but like organizations need overhead. Everyone wants to fund their pet thing. They want to be very targeted. They don't want to fund a good group. Well, I think rich people should probably think about doing more blue sky stuff. They should think more about, I'm just going to pick these really smart people who sound interesting and just give them money and see what they come up with. And we do a little bit of that, but it's unfortunately often really weighted towards people who've already achieved a lot rather than someone who's like a really cool looking 25-year-old. I would say over the last 20 years or so, it does seem like so many of the smartest, most ambitious people went into hedge funds, into private equity. I'm nothing against hedge funds and private equity, but- it does seem like society could have much more benefited from an alternative path of those people. I think in a lot of cases, yes. You also have to remember there's domain stuff. I'm okay as a journalist, okay enough to have a pretty good job and a reasonably large following. My alternative path, the only reason I'm in this is that I didn't really fail as a management consultant so much as never start. I graduated from business school in 2001 into the teeth of the recession and my whole associate class got laid off. But I had to get pretty desperate before I was willing to take $40,000 a year to work for The Economist. <laughs> but it actually turned out to be the better and arguably even the more lucrative 
not like I make hedge fund or McKinsey partner money, but I'm better at this job relatively. My comparative advantage is in journalism. How many people in the hedge funds would have been better off doing science? I don't know. But I also think- I mean, a lot of them studied physics and there's certainly those types of things that happened. Although a lot of the time when I talk to even people who did physics, they say, well, I got out when I realized I wasn't, I wasn't a smart or creative. I wasn't going to be the best. I was really good, but I wasn't going to win a Nobel Prize. Even Bill Gates decided he wasn't going to be a mathematician once he went to Harvard. The answer is I actually don't know. How big a loss is it to have the people who would have been the non-Nobel Prize winning physicists? I'm genuinely have no idea what the answer is. Maybe it's huge. But I think the people who think they're going to win a Nobel Prize, who think they even might, those people stay in. Because in fact, they do care more about the... It's not even the status. If you're that kind of person, you love physics so much that no one could pay you enough to leave physics. And I think about this honestly with journalism, because I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was eight. Now, I didn't want to be a journalist. I wanted to write... I wrote my first novel in like a, you know, those black and white composition books. <laughs> One of these. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was almost running away from it because it seemed impractical. And so I did all of these things that seemed very practical that were not nearly as practical as just doing the thing that I friggin' love so much that I did it for five years for free before anyone paid me to blog. And those people are going to stay in. What's the marginal benefit of the other people? I don't know. Maybe it's enormous. It really it could be. I'm sure there's a lot of more workaday stuff that needs to be done that isn't being done. I would actually worry more about how we're funding it than what opportunities we're creating for those people. Because the other reason I hear that people get out is that the whole system's so messed up. You've got to wait until forever to get a grant. 10-year stuff, yeah, that we talked about. Yeah, once you get the grant, it was the like 80% of scientists who have grants who are asked, if you could change what you're doing, would you? Would you be working on a different problem? And like 80% of them say yes. <laughs> that stuff, I worry that we're sucking a lot of the creative joy out of science. And I would actually worry more about that than the financialization part. Two quick personal questions. First is that your first pen name was Jane Galt, which I think is in reference to John Galt on Atlas Shrugged. It is. I don't see as many pen names anymore. It doesn't seem like it's much of a thing. A, is that true? And B, why is that? It is true. There's famously, I would imagine that some of your listeners are familiar with Scott Alexander's blog, now Substack. And his is not really a pen name. It's his first and middle name, but kind of is my name, understanding. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of a pen name. And Jane Galt, for me, was actually the same thing. Was I tried to take myself anonymous, and it didn't work. I'd started a blog under my own name, and I didn't really expect it to be big. And then it got big, and I got terrified. Because I was like, I had to find a job. I had just been laid off by the consulting firm. And so I was like, okay, Jane Galt. And it didn't work. But then people knew who I was. And it's a damn good thing that I ended up as a journalist, because I'm really not sure what else I could have done with all <laughs> of my published opinions at that point which I didn't really think about when I was starting a blog. But I was doing this right at the beginning when we didn't really think about like the internet is forever. It's just going to follow you for the rest of your life. I thought of it more as like talking to my friends at 3am in a bar. I think the reason we don't have a lot of pen names is partly the reason that the New York Times thought that it was worthwhile to out Scott Alexander was that journalists have a very, very, very strong bias towards not allowing an anonymity. We can talk about whether that's good or bad, and also, we can talk about whether it is unequally granted, which I think it is. So there's a guy on the Chapa Trap House podcast who was granted anonymity by the New York Times, and people have not unfairly drawn invidious comparisons between that and the treatment of Scott Alexander. 
But in general, we want to print people's real names. And the web is flattened stuff in a way like everything is available in a way that it was not before. That if you were writing for an alt weekly in Baltimore in 1970 and you had a pen name, first of all, odds are that you were in overlapping social circles with any reporter who wanted to out you. Second of all, they're probably not going to do an article about you. And third of all, if they did, they're probably going to just leave you alone. And even if they named you, it was not going to go anywhere. No one else was going to really care what your name was. And it would be very hard to find that information. It just would not get widely disseminated. In the hackers, it does seem like there are still these quote unquote pen names. Like you have these handles. No one knows who Satoshi is and stuff like that. And <laughs> yes. it's a little bit more common. Well, in fairness, some of them are evading the law. So <laughs> That's a good point. They have good reason not to want to be known. But now, if you have a pen name, there are people who are going to want to find it out. And the empty bucket to fill with copy is so much bigger than it was in 1970, that there's going to be some website that's going to out you. And there's more tools. It's so much easier. If you wanted to figure out who a Baltimore blogger was, a Baltimore alt-weekly columnist was in 1970, like I guess you could go and wait at the offices and spy on them and see who came in to pick <laughs> up a check and like all that... But like now the tracking tools are so much easier that it's almost impossible to stay anonymous on the internet if you really want to. It's not impossible. Satoshi has managed despite all the efforts to figure out who that is, but it's much more difficult. There are more amateurs doing it in ways that are, I'm sure I'm hugely tracked. Someone mailed me a picture of my house with a gun sight superimposed on it. I did not post my address anywhere. It's just a lot easier to access the data needed to track someone down. And that's, so I think that the utility of pen names has been dropping. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Oh, this is hard because I'm of the opinion that most conventional wisdom is correct. <laughs> like, oh, good. Okay. This is why it becomes conventional wisdom. So I think the over 10 window rant that I gave you is one where I just think that that, that is- was a very good one. Yes. Really, really incorrect. But I would say that I think the urge to talk it out can be really overrated. I'm one quarter wasp but the other three quarters Irish and both cultures have a strong denial and just like not mentioning things <laughs> culture. And I actually think that certainly in private life, that's often a useful and undervalued skill. Keep it bottled in inside. Well, anyone who's been married for a while knows that there are a lot of fights that you just never resolve. You just have the same stupid fight over and over again. And at some point, I think if your marriage is going to succeed, you just decide to stop having the fight. Just let's stop having the fight, right? It's never going to get resolved. It's never going to get resolved. And maybe I am still bitter or sad about it or whatever. But you know what? I'm just not going to have the fight because it's unwinnable. Or instead of having it every week, you go to once a month or once a quarter or once a year or something like that. Or once a year. Exactly. Not everything is solvable. Sometimes people have genuinely different interests, desires, et cetera. And like talking it out doesn't fix the problem. And sometimes it can make it worse. So here is a piece of conventional wisdom that I think is really, really terrible and should be fixed. Diversity trainings, in general, the way that they're conducted, where it's like these struggle sessions about how terrible men, white people, et cetera, are, where the object is to talk about how oppressed everyone else is. And I'm not denying that, in fact, these things happen, that there's a lot of white racism, that there is structural oppression. I am a firm believer in systemic racism. Institutional sexism exists. I am not denying any of it. But it turns out that talking about it in the ways that diversity training does, where we just all sit around and examine our consciences and talk about it, 
makes things worse. It's disruptive. It makes people defensive. And they're, in fact, less receptive to change and to improving things than they were before. And I think in my personal experience, honestly, like the best experience I have ever had trying to convince someone of the reality of systemic racism was completely by accident. I was not trying to convince people of the reality of systemic racism. I was trying to convince academics that they are indeed biased against conservatives. And so I wrote this really, really, really long post in which I said, like, look, if you believe in systemic racism, which is a correct thing that is true and a problem that society needs to address, you should also understand that the same mechanisms, many of the same mechanisms are going to operate against conservatives in places where the left is really dominant. Things like affinity bias. We just like people who are like us. It's hard to imagine how other people are thinking if you don't know any of them. They seem strange and all of these things. These things can operate so that you never need to sit down and say, we've all agreed we're not hiring any conservatives. And you can still nonetheless be discriminating. And you know that this is true because like, when it comes to racial and sexual minorities, you understand this perfectly. So you should understand it in the context of conservatives. This completely did not work. I got a bunch of enraged academics being like, how dare you say I'm bigoted against conservatives? The problem is not me. The problem is that conservatives are a bunch of mouth-breathing <laughs> losers. They're all creationists. They're stupid. They're just money-grubbing. You don't want I'm like if I had written this in a novel, I would have been drummed right out of the Subtle Fiction Writers League. But a weird side effect was that I got about a dozen conservatives who were like, oh, oh, wow, I never thought of systemic racism. I felt like a personal accusation to me. And now I understand what people are saying is that it's just oh, interesting. like, so suddenly, <laughs> now I'm actually really successful telling conservatives, guys, you know what's happening to conservatives? That's systemic racism, same stuff. I'm not saying that they're morally the same, to be clear. I'm saying, it's the same mechanism. It's people being nice to people who are like them, hiring people they know, et cetera, et cetera. That's what people are talking about. And you know that that's happening in academia and the media and so forth. And you should believe it's also happening in other places because here's nine audit studies showing that it's actually happening in other places. Microaggressions, all the stuff you complain about with the mainstream media, it's all microaggressions. It's real. You believe in them and you hate them. You don't do it to other people. <laughs> like the pounce thing you just mentioned earlier. Yes. I think the conventional wisdom that the way to deal with things is to talk about how terrible one group has been to another is actually wrong. I think the way to deal with these things is, first of all, to like de-escalate the stakes and then to try to like make these empathetic connections of like, oh, I suffer this way, you suffer this way. What if we both reduced our joint suffering? And it's more effective. It feels less morally satisfying, I think. And I get that. If you have been discriminated against, you're mad and you just want someone to hear you're mad. You want someone to honor that and recognize that it happened. I grant that. But I think for organizations, it's more effective to look for that common ground, for the things that everyone's suffering, and then look at the ways in which it is manifested differently for different groups and so forth. But to find that start with the common ground rather than the different ground. It's unclear for the HR example that are they actually trying to make it things better or... Is there a CYA aspect to yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's liability shield. I once joined a company. I actually read the whole manual, the HR manual. And like there was like a section in the manual that said you couldn't do cocaine on premises. And it didn't say you couldn't do heroin or you couldn't do meth. And <laughs> literally just said cocaine. I was like, well, someone did cocaine. It someone did out, cocaine I on premises. Up the HR person asked them the story. And like five years before, they caught some guy doing cocaine in the bathroom and they thought it was like important to put it in the manual. We're like, Everyone should just know that. 
who did they hire that didn't know that they weren't supposed to do that? There's certain norms that you know shouldn't be violated. You should treat people with respect. You shouldn't discriminate against people, like all these other types of things. And if someone violates this norm, you should just fire their ass and not actually have to put it in a big manual. It's like all of those weird product label warnings that I love. Right, exactly. These Q-tips, do not insert an eye. Well, (laughs) (laughs) who needs to be told that? Do not set your clothes on fire. (laughs) Do not wrap a plastic bag over your head. (laughs) Yes, I think... I'm pretty sure. And the kids who might do that unwittingly can't read. So that's not very helpful either, right? (laughs) But someone did it and they are covering themselves from a lawsuit against the idiot who is going to like take this safety pin and jam it in their eye rather than using it for the intended purpose. Just like the product things where it's like 200,000 words that no one's going to be able to read anyway. The HR is similar where it's just so much stuff coming at you in these huge manuals. Like you can't actually process it. If they actually just had like three things in there, you'd be able to process it really well. But because it's so much, it's really just a CYA type of thing. At a former employer, names hidden to protect the guilty, but I had to do an implicit bias training. And this was like implicit bias didn't replicate. It's got all sorts of problems. It's not clear that it maps onto any real world outcomes. And I thought about writing HR to be like, why are we doing a training on this thing that has very unclear? And I was like, no, that's not the purpose of the training, right? The training, the purpose of the training is that if we get sued, they can go into court and be like, look at the wonderful implicit bias training I did. I heard a story about a British news organization, his name I will also conceal, but they were told they were going to do this training and all the science journalists just came in and was like, this doesn't replicate, this doesn't replicate, this doesn't replicate. (laughs) If you can come back and show us that the studies you're using have replicated, we will sit through the training and they have not done the training. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. Because like so many of these trainings, they don't care whether it replicates, whether it's good science. It often does the opposite of what they want, as you mentioned. It has negative effects. It makes people more racist or more sexist or these other types of things. Or just more resistant. The fact is in a diverse workplace, You are going to microaggress people who are in a minority in that workplace. You are going to have these tensions and you're going to have to negotiate them. And they need to be negotiated with goodwill and with people being willing to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that I'd offended you. But once you make people sit through the training, they feel belittled and it makes them hostile. They feel like they're being treated like children. And they're not then in a good frame of mind to be a cooperative, helpful coworker who in the spirit of goodwill can learn something that helps them negotiate cultural differences, which are always going to pop up at any workplace. And of course, America's racial history is going to inflect those experiences, gender, sexual identity, and all of that. It's going to be a challenge. But you want people in the best possible frame of mind to negotiate that challenge and making them sit through a training that tells them how terrible they are turns out to be a very bad way to put <laughs> yeah. them in that frame of mind. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you, Megan McArdle, for joining us at World of Deaths. I follow you at Asymmetric Info, which is a very interesting Twitter handle on Twitter. I encourage our listeners to engage with you there. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.